This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Canon Stephen Gautier and is part two of Revealing the Heart of God, A Journey Through the Minor Prophets. Today we continue our series on the Minor Prophets with the prophet Joel. And I think the way to start is to think of, you know, one of the challenges, beautiful things about being a physician, you know, healing people, taking care of those needs. But I imagine one of the toughest things about being a physician is you're in a position you often have to break very bad news. There's no getting around it, bad news. Something like, well, you did the test results have come back and your condition is serious. This is serious. So it's one of those things about being a doctor, sometimes you have to tell people that. And sometimes it goes another step. Not only is it serious, but you might find, for example, that um, there's hope for survival, but no hope for recovery. Where the doctor says, I'm so sorry, we can't change what's happened, but we can stop it from getting worse, you know, sort of holding the line. Not a great outcome, better than something else, but not a great outcome. Or even worse, at this late stage, there's really nothing. I'm so sad, there's really nothing we can do. We can make you comfortable, but we can't do anything at this stage. That's pretty tough. And in a sense, that's the story. The prophet Joel has some really bad news for Israel. However, despite that, the book of Joel is all about hope. A profound message of hope is what we'll have today. So our questions this morning is, what specifically is the hope that we find in the midst of this bad news? What's the hope that we find, an incredible hope, in the book of the prophet Joel? And how can we actually take advantage of that hope? Well, let's first talk about the, the situation. What is that hope? Is the prophet Joel, we're not quite sure, it could be anywhere from the ninth century to the fifth century in which he lived. It's very, it has a universal sort of application. But the situation, if you've read the book this week, is the first chapter tells us there was a terrible plague of locusts. I mean, this is worse than having three teenage boys. I mean, I'm really, they leave nothing, nothing behind. Okay. And in a world of subsistence agriculture, this kind of thing was a lot more serious. You see, in the ancient world, you didn't have the kind of crop yield, you know, for a seed, how many seeds do you get? It was much, much lower. So something like this that hurt the crop meant people, not that they just needed as much as they would have, or prices go up, it means a lot of people are going to starve. It's really bad news, calamitous news. Now, you're saying, wait a second, he didn't have to tell them that they're living. This isn't a threat of something that's going to happen. It's already happened. This plague has occurred. So that's not the bad news the prophet Joel has. They knew that. The bad news is that they had brought it on themselves. That this is connected. They had wandered from God, and this plague is directly related to that. That's the bad news. It wasn't one of those things that happened. They had done it to themselves. That's hard news to break, but he had to break it to them. So, so far, it's like that, uh, that, that the first part of our story with the physician is sometimes physicians, like prophets are physicians, that we have to break bad news. But the really good book of, uh, news of the book of Joel is we don't have two, either of those two other options. Remember, we said that a doctor sometimes has to say, we can stop it getting worse, but we've lost what we've lost. It will never be the same. That's not true. Okay, and the other thing, remember the... the uh, it's, first of all, our situation isn't hopeless. That's a more logical place to start. The situation is not hopeless. It says, yet even now. 
despite all of this, this he said, even now, it's not too late. He said, the Lord's merciful. Even yet, even now, the title of our sermon, as I call it, Emergency Exit, it's not too late. So it's not like the doctor having to say, I'm afraid at this stage there's really nothing we can do. Oh, that's good news. And better than that. It's not one of those things where, yes, we can stop things from getting worse, but you're never going to be to what you were. Is what he tells us specifically, even better news, we have every hope of complete recovery. Look what we have in verses 24 and 25. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Wow, I will restore to you the years of the locust. So not just we will stop it from getting any worse, is it's we can restore, we can bring healing and restoration. But even better news, how can it be better? We have good news and better news. Now here's the best news. It's going to be better than ever. And it came from verses 28 and 29, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And what this means is what God promised isn't simply that things aren't impossible, that things can't be restored. He's saying, I'm going to give you something better than you ever had because the Holy Spirit is God. His Spirit is God, God's life. The Holy Spirit, as we say in the Creed, the Lord, the giver of life. He's not just offering us a better human life. He's offering part of us to share in His life. His Spirit poured on us His own life. That's terrific news. Now, you might say, well, that was wonderful for people at the time of the prophet Joel, but what about us? Well, that message is very much, continues and gets even greater in the New Testament. For example, the situation not being hopeless, remember the thief on the cross. He himself says he was a career criminal. He described himself, my whole life, that's what I've done. I made bad, horrible choices. But he says, could you remember me when you come into kingdom? He's the only person we're told is with the Lord. He says, this day you will be with me in paradise. It wasn't, if it's not too late for a career criminal on the cross, it's never too late. So we have that, so if it's not late, what about rest restoration? There's a beautiful parable. I gave you the reference. It's in Matthew, uh, in Matthew uh, uh, 20. It's a guy goes out to hire people, and he goes in the beginning of the day for full day's work. And he keeps going back and hiring people throughout the day. And he has some people only work an hour. Instead of an eight-hour day, they only work an hour a day. But everyone gets paid the same. You would have thought those poor people who weren't able to get hired until the end of the day would say, well, this is the best I can do. He says, they got everything. Jesus, he draws the voice, he said, the last will be first. And the first last, the last will be first. So he's, there's a promise of restoration more than that. Peter says, you know, Peter quotes Joel by name at length in the first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he goes on to say, folks, this is about us. He says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the news of the prophet Joel is that promise that it's never too late. That promise that it doesn't have to be sort of being a spiritual half-life or a spiritual zombie, you know, sort of what remains of life. Uh, and actually, more abundant than we ever had life before is the promise to us. Now, with a promise like that, we say, well, how can I take advantage of that promise? You know, how do I make that mine? 
And this is where the Joel, Joel gives us the really good news. How do we get there? And he says, how do we embrace that hope? He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Returning with all our heart. This is what in the New Testament we call repentance, rethinking. You know, we just turn our lives around, but, we, you know, our heart, it's a heart change. It's not just what we do, it's who we are. It's a heart change. Return, return to the Lord with your whole heart. Now, as we go into this, I bet a lot of us here find that a discouraging message. Incredibly, why would that be discouraging? We say, I've tried that. I've tried changing my life and things, and it hasn't worked. And I, you know, I just don't, you know, and the enemy is saying in our ear, you know, why would this time be different? Or shouting in our ear, why would this time be different? So I want to talk about is there's every reason this can be different. Because very often there are three, one of three things or a combination that stops us from really returning with our whole heart. And if we know what those are, we're prepared to act accordingly, to, to receive grace. So what are the three things that sometimes compromise us when we want to return with our whole heart? And the first one is we have to remember we're often looking in the wrong direction. Here's what I mean by that is, you know, repentance, what the church liked to call it is conversion. That sounds like one of those religious words, but actually in Latin it's an everyday word. Converto in Latin means to turn around. And so conversion means literally to turn around. It's a pretty prosaic word. I like that. In the early church, to make the point, when you were baptized, what you did is you'd look towards the west. Let's pretend this is west. I know it's north. Okay, let's pretend this is west. And I, I thought you don't want me looking that way. Okay, so we're going to look west. Okay, and they would say, do you renounce Satan? Do you renounce all his works, all his false allures, his false promises? He says, then he said, do you turn? And people literally turned and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The need to turn, but here's what I think we do. The idea is we turn and we end up looking at Jesus. But what often happens when we repent is we don't do that. We turn around, but we keep looking backwards. We keep focusing backwards. And what happens is, so think of it this way, in human wisdom, you know, uh, we know that uh, my father of blessed memory, I remember as a kid when I learned how to drive, I remember this, I still remember to this day, my father saying, son, why are you looking forward when the car is moving backward? <laughs> and I told him, well, dad, I've been looking in the mirrors, no, son, why are you always look in the direction the car is moving? Someone can jump out of front, mirrors aren't good enough, you always look in the direction the car is heading. Those were words, that saved some people, by the way, in my driving career. Now, the same thing is true, with, uh, and another thing, anyone with coaching, if you're coaching baseball or golf or tennis, what's one of the things, the most basic thing you get coming back? Keep your eye on the ball. You're not going to hit it if you're not looking at it. So the, our mistake is that we need to, it, instead of looking back at, look at my repentance, we need to be looking at Jesus. This is an important spiritual truth is, for example, I love the example of Peter. I love the guy. Uh, he does all the right things to make, make a point to us. Jesus is walking on the water. Who else but Peter would say, hey, this is great. Ask me to walk out to, to meet you. And Jesus said, sure. So Peter actually gets out and begins walking like God on the water. But what happens? It says in the text, he saw the wind and then he began to sink. Now, we might miss the point of that. 
How did he see the wind? He stopped looking at Jesus. Instead of saying, I'm coming to Jesus, be wow, this is great, I'm walking on water. That's what can happen with our repentance. We're so big, look at how my life is changing. We're not looking at Jesus anymore. We're looking at me. And the answer is always the same. We begin sinking. You know what will keep us? The only thing that will keep us above those waves, but it will, is if we focus, never forget, we're looking this way, we're focusing on Jesus, we'll walk on water. The minute, no matter how pious, look at what I've done and this thing in my... When we focus on that instead of Jesus, we sink. And this is why, I, you know it's coming, my favorite verse in the New Testament. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one of greed of glory to another. Here's the image he's saying. He says it's like this. Remember when Moses saw God, what would happen when he'd come back? His face would glow from having seen God. People would know he'd seen God. He would be transformed. It was an image for us. So the thing that Paul says here, as we look, he says, as we behold God's image in Jesus, as we focus on Jesus, we become imitators of God. Suddenly God transforms us into that same image. That's how he transforms us. By the way, in theology, we say there's something called the beatific vision. It means, this is our goal in life, is it means what's, what, where, where's the road end for us? We see God face to face. Remember Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly, then we'll see face to face. It's called beatific because it, it's what makes, it's the thing that finally puts it all together. When we actually see God face to face, we're transformed completely, fully. That finishes the transformation into that image. So never forget the fact that we always have to remember we're always looking at God. We'll only transform to the degree we're looking at God. So we're aware of these other things. Yeah, he knew he was walking on water, but he was looking at Jesus. It didn't become about the walking on water. It was all about getting nearer to Jesus. As long as he's trying to get near Jesus, he was fine. Also, this is why uh, Jesus says, uh, for example, he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. We never look backward. Like, you know, like, uh, you know, Lot's wife, we never look backward. And I like this, to me, there's a little motto I have, despair looks backward, hope looks forward. So that's the first thing. Are we looking? Maybe we're failing because we get all wrapped up in what we're you know, not doing, focusing on the change instead of focusing. It's not where we're coming from, it's where we're going. We always want to focus. Look, son, look at the direction the car is going. If I want to walk towards Jesus, just focus on getting closer to him. Everything else will take care of itself. What's the second mistake we make? Is we basically dig a hole and don't fill it in. You know, we create a spiritual vacuum. Uh, Jesus has a wonderful parable about this. It's in Matthew 12. And he says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, to, uh, it says, I'll return to the house I came from. And it comes and it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it's like it's this evil spirit leaves this man. It's basically we, we clean up our mess, you know, in the sense we, we stop doing these evil things. But we don't replace it with good. We stop hating, but we don't start loving, that kind of thing. You know, we get rid of something, but we don't replace it by the real thing that should be there. The enemy comes back saying, this is fantastic, better than ever. Let's bring friends. And he says the state of that man is worse than the first. We can't leave a spiritual vacuum. So the, the thing we have to remember is, is it's not about what we don't do, it's what we do. This is the story of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were good people. They tried to do right, most of them. Some of them are hypocrites, but a lot of the Pharisees as a group were good people trying to do the right thing, but they just kept focusing on what not to do. 
And Jesus says it's all about the, the loving God and loving our neighbor. We have to interpret the commandments through that lens. It's the positive thing. It's not what we're not doing. It's that we are loving God, that we are loving our neighbor. There's a beautiful example Paul gives us in Ephesians. He's talking about the commandment, you know, don't steal. So he talks about what do you do if you're a thief? And listen to this advice. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Here's the, here's the clincher. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, we expected Paul to say, hey, you were stealing, why don't you get a job so you don't have to steal? Paul doesn't say, no, no, you need to get a job so you can be a giver rather than a taker. It's, no, it's not, being, not being a taker, it's about becoming a giver. If we focus on being a giver, we're not going to think about stealing. It's that, you know, that's, so that's the positive commandment. Luther, who never disappoints, I have a special place in my heart for Martin Luther, is Martin Luther gives an example with the commandment, uh, don't bear false witness. And he compares, he said, imagine a neighbor who is sitting around and he sees that his neighbor's house is being burglarized. People are breaking in and taking everything out of the house. And he just sits there and watches. And when his neighbor comes back, he says, what happened? Weren't you here all day? And he said, yeah, yeah, some people came, broke into your house, took your stuff. Well, why didn't you do anything? He said, oh, well, I didn't take anything. And he said, that's what he compared us to. He said, we shouldn't be gossiping, saying bad things. So he said, but you're sitting listening to other people do this and doing nothing to defend their reputation. You know, so the answer isn't not to, 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 to lie and gossip. The answer is to tell the truth in love. Paul says, speak the truth in love. We should be focusing on what we say, not what we don't say. If we're speaking the truth in love, we're not going to be gossiping and lying. So the thing is, don't create a pit. The enemy loves it. He says he brings back some of his friends. Don't clean up and leave a vacuum. We're always, God is always about filling. That's why Paul, Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The space of getting rid of the bad stuff is designed simply to create room for the new stuff. It's like getting your old furniture so you can get new furniture in. The whole purpose of cleaning up is to allow the new to be put in, not to create an empty room. The third thing, that we have is the third, we might be tempted to look upon this as a self-help project. You see, we're, we're always children of our society, right? 21st century North America, we're all about self-help. And that's a good thing. It's not bad that we try to prove things. But you understand that conversion, theologically, is a miracle. It means it's impossible. Humanly speaking, we cannot do it. That's a theological fact. We can't do it. Doesn't mean it can't be done, but we can't do it. So we, we want to convert this into a, uh, no pun intended, into a self-help project. So here's, here's the thing. It's always the work of God, and there's no shame in that. My favorite, in this strong competition, my favorite line our bishop has ever told us was that we're not ashamed to need Jesus. No shame in that. So here's what I think we have. I think a lot of us have the false impression, don't you, that what repentance means is you know, it's like when relatives are going to come over, and like we had kids and things, so when people would actually come, you say, oh boy, we got to get the house in order. The house is, a, we got three boys. Okay, the house is a wreck. And so, you know, we got to get everything set so when they come, we can open the door and actually let them in instead of pretending there's a plague warning or something. Okay, so we got to get the house ready. And so we think somehow repentance means I have to get the house ready so Jesus can come in. I'll get it all cleaned up, then Jesus can come in. You can't clean the house. Jesus has come to do that. You know, we have it backwards. Jesus is the one who comes in the house and does the cleaning. So the idea, if we wait until we're ready, that'll never happen. The good news is Jesus is like the good friend. He doesn't just come to help move when you're in college. He's the one who comes early to help you pack. Okay, so repentance isn't about doing it. It's about letting God in to do it. 
It's only that force that can do real conversion. Okay. Now, this is our blessed assurance is that God never asks us anything without giving us the strength to do it. I love Paul in Philippians 4.13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's through him who strengthens me. We never get to a point where we don't need Jesus, ever. Thank God. And the second thing is the negative side. Jesus tells us, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For here's the clincher. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So that's a, that's a real truth. So just remember, there's plenty of help, but it's from God. We won't, we have to resist it. You know, it's like playing doubles tennis. And you're basically saying, you know, we want to say, you know, like playing with God, say, I've got it. You don't have to worry. I've got it. No. He always gets them. We never get one for him. It's always, he's, he's the one who actually knows how to play. Okay. Now, Let's summarize then. We say that nothing is probably worse than suffering the consequences of our own bad decisions. This is what happened to Israel. That locust plague, the, Joel has to tell them, is not something that just sort of happened. They did this. In our own lives, we can sometimes look back and say, you know, this isn't something that just happened to me. I wrecked my life, or I wrecked this part of my life. I wrecked this relationship. I did this. I once heard it described this way is people look back and they say, I built hell myself one brick at a time, one decision at a time. That's a horrible place to be. And the enemy, of course, is always there to think the worst. And he says, yeah, it's hopeless for you. It's all over. It's finished. That's a lie. That's what they call him, the father lies. What Joel tells us is, oh, no, no, there is always an emergency exit. There's always a way out. It's never too late. Moreover than that, it's not just becoming part walking wounded. We're talking about real restoration, not just walking wounded well, won't get worse. The real thing. And more than that, abundance, a life like we've never had before, a life in the Spirit, God's own life. That's the promise to everyone. He says, this is, I'll send my Spirit on all flesh. So sometimes, put it this way, sometimes you might be discouraged. I think sometimes bad news turns out at the end, after we embrace it, becomes really great news. I knew a man, for example, this is talk about out of nowhere bad news. You talk about the physician example. He goes and he finds out out of the blue that you've got a brain tumor. And the tumor really is, this is really dicey. It's in a really bad place. It's actually blocked, completely blocked all the flow of your blood out of your main vein. Your, your head obviously is created other ways around. And that means you can't really do anything with it. We can't remove it because that'll create a double stroke. You know, so it's, this is a tough thing. This is, out of the blue, from the morning being, I think I'm perfectly healthy, no symptoms, etc., to accidentally discovered finding, oh, wow. You'd think somebody would like that would look back and say, wow, that was one of the worst days of my life. But actually, that person, I'm so surprised, says, probably the best day of my life. Because of that, they were able, because they found out, they were able to do the stuff that meant full, absolute recovery. You'd never guess. Full, absolute recovery. And that's how it is with our sin. Now, that's why Luther said, sin boldly. What he means by this is, is when we know we're in trouble, then we know we need help, and that's a gift. It's people who think they don't need help, you know, are the ones who actually then find out they're in stage four. You know, the people, it's, it's when we go there and find out what first seems better, we find out there's still, we can do something. That's a gift. 
And so what do we, so it's really could be great news, and we shouldn't be discouraged by past failures. If we've tried in the past, remember, we always want to look forward, never than backward. Just keep, it's always about moving towards Jesus. Don't fo ever focus on what you're moving away from. We always want to focus, we're aware of that, but we're always focusing on where we're heading. The next thing is we remember, we want to remember we're not simply getting rid of sin, we're replacing it what, what should be there, right? We're cleaning the room for the new furniture, right? The whole thing is about what should be there. That's the only, otherwise leaving a vacuum is spiritual. Jesus said the man's condition is worse if you do that. He said it's worse than if it had ever happened. And finally, he said, look for the one sure source of power, God himself. And I love this. Jesus says, you know, the, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. There's no situation beyond God. And you might say, well, wait a second. Didn't we just read in the gospel today about the sin against the Holy Spirit? Well, we might misunderstand that passage. We well, see, why does it say, have you ever wondered why is it okay to, to blaspheme the Father and the Son? They're God. Why, that doesn't make any sense. Why the Holy Spirit? Here's why. A person in all honesty might just not know about God. It doesn't justify them, but, you know, there's, there are reasons people might not know about God. And there are reasons people might have thought Jesus of Nazareth, the time he appeared, he's a perfectly human being, and saying, why would I believe this person who's just like me right over there is God? That wasn't unreasonable. But there's a context for this. The context, you know, in our gospel, uh, you know, as they're saying because he's casting out, uh, out demons, the fact is, and one of the other versions makes it really, really clear, they knew what he was doing for God. Basically, they, they knew. There was no doubt about it. They knew God. They rejected that knowingly and willingly. So it wasn't that they were asking, I don't know. And so the sin against the Holy Spirit simply means we just honestly don't want God. We fully understand and realize he's offering a life with us. We just don't want that life. We say no. It's not that God says no to us, that we definitively say no to God. So like Billy Graham likes to remind us, if, uh, I, th I love that man, I think he's a great man of God, a blessed memory, is that he'd point out if you worry about the sin against the Holy Spirit, you certainly haven't committed it. Because the sign of the, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us. The very guilt is a gift to the Holy Spirit. It's like that, you know, tells us something is wrong. That's always the Holy Spirit at work. So again, if you somehow, if the enemy is telling you, you can't because somehow you, no, no, you know, that's not true. The fact is, you know, the very fact you feel any stirring of, 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 of that something's bad is proof. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what conviction is called. So to, uh, to, to, to finish then, Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, remember, said that, the prophet, that this promise to Joel is a promise to us. He said it's for your children, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So this is, you know, uh, I would just finish with the words of the Apostle Paul. In that light... I love where he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.